Hello and welcome to episode 14 of AS for Architecture with me, Ambrose Gillick. In this episode, I speak with Professor Henry Sanoff, Professor Emeritus at North Carolina State University and personal hero of mine, about his lifetime of work on participatory design with communities across the world and specifically three of his most widely read books, Community Participation Methods in Design and Planning, published by Wiley in 2000, Participatory Environmental Design, published in 2018 by Create Space, and Visual Research Methods in Design, republished by Routledge in 2018. So the State Architecture Board said that if we don't redesign the building, they're going to call for a meeting in the community. They said, we're not redesigning because we can't. We're obliged to do this because this was really based on some of the community's aspirations. So there's a community meeting that was held. We were invited uh, and uh, about 125 people showed up. And the, uh, the chief architect from the state said, you know, we did a wonderful job, but there are some problems and we'd like to make some changes. The woman who was the head of the Parent Teachers Association stood up and said, we're not interested in listening to your comments. We only came here because we wanted to make sure that the building that's built is the building that we helped to design. All of a sudden, it was a sense of ownership. The building wasn't even built and the people, the parents owned the building and the meeting was was canceled. A's for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to AS for Architecture. I'm talking today to Professor Henry Sanoff. Good professor, would you introduce yourself? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Would you be so kind as uh, to introduce yourself? Um, well, I'm going to be 90 years old very soon. Fantastic. <laughs> and um, for the past 60 years, I've been involved in um, teaching and education and professional practice. But my professional practice is perhaps a little different than what most professions in the design world uh, would understand. Um, my background education is in architecture. Mm-hmm. And for the past um, number of decades, colleagues have been saying, what I do is not architecture. So, but I've been very successful in what I do, and the impact has been rather interesting. But it's taken a long time uh, to begin to question the nature of design education, the nature of professional practice in des- all design fields. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, I've been working at this diligently for quite a number of decades. So, so you trained as an architect? Yes, I'm a licensed architect in New York and California. Ah. And um, I, um, as a student, I won a competition, and the prize was to work for Frank Lloyd Wright on the Guggenheim Museum, which I did. And then Frank Lloyd Wright told me um, that when I graduated, I should work for the best American architect that he thought which was Edward Stone. Um, Ed Stone designed the original Museum of Modern Art in 1949. So I went to work for Ed Stone, and then I decided or uh, understood that you have to be careful about the advice, advice you take from them, no matter who it is. So that was my biggest learning experience 
<laughs> working for Fred Lord Wright. I want to see, like, why, why was working for Edward Stone so troubling? Well, this was um, um, after he had done the um, New Delhi Embassy, mm-hmm. which was um, grill, these, these kind of concrete block grills, and he was referred to as Grill Man. And he he had a, a very nice old brownstone in Manhattan, a four-story brownstone, and he covered the entire facade with the grill, which was absolutely awful. But um, his office was just a few doors away, and I was um, a designer in his office, and I was working on the, the New Delhi housing around the embassy. And of course, I didn't go to New Delhi. And I asked him, you know, who are the people that are going to be living here? He said, I don't know. Just make sure you design it with lots of grills. Okay, so in the office, there was a, a very large Calder mobile, very large. It's probably as big as you would see in the Museum of Modern Art. And he wanted to move that mobile to his new house, his old house renovated. So he asked me if I would organize a team to move it. So I did some sketches and uh, we disassembled it very carefully, um, moved the pieces to the new house, looked at the sketches, assembled it very carefully. It was balanced beautifully, except there was one piece missing. It was sitting on the floor. Well, we weren't going to take the entire mobile apart. So I took that one piece and tucked it under the sofa. And I haven't heard in the last 50 years what's happened to that last piece. <laughs> so you did, you trained in New York, did you? At Pratt, yes. I see. And, and, then, and then got a job in, in the office as a, as a sort of, I don't know how the American training system works compared with the British system. Do you do you do a split degree like we do here? A five year no, study? No. Um well actually um the a five year bachelor's degree is the professional degree. Mm-hmm. And then you have to work for three years mm-hmm. at that time and take the license exam, which is four or five days. Um but then I went on to graduate school. I took the license exam and passed it the first time. As a matter of fact, uh Philip Johnson told us, um, don't, he failed the design part five times. And he told us, make sure you don't, don't try to win any awards in the design. <laughs> but I passed the whole thing the first time. And I was taking the exam with my thesis advisor. It was absolutely incredible. He failed. <laughs> so, um, but my, um, my professional practice was no better than um, my academic experience. Um, I describe it as um, puzzle solving as opposed to problem solving. Mm-hmm. Because throughout the five years undergraduate work, you'd have a list of pieces that have to be assembled. And it was only the critic that would know and decide which is the best assembly of all the pieces. Mm-hmm. So um, the concept of program didn't really exist. I think you would call it a brief. Mm-hmm. Um, then when I worked in the professional office, I found that there was no different, same thing. So I went back to graduate school and found that um, the, the number of variables didn't change 
but the projects got bigger. And so it became very clear that um, there was something wrong with my education and my experience in professional practice. Consequently, I, I decided for my last year, which is like the final thesis, I should go to another country, a country that I knew nothing about, but they spoke English. And this was during the time when there was a lot of um, migration from rural areas to urban areas, just the beginning of it. And I thought, well, maybe I should spend time living in a small village and then going to an urban area and just, you know, um, see what I could do as an architect. Um, there was very little written. I, I, I actually went to Jamaica, which is uh, at that time, it was a British colony. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did have an excellent contact there who arranged some meetings. So there was very little I could find written about Jamaica, except there was a book by a woman named Lily Mae Burke, who was like the Martha Mead um, kind of self-styled anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And she wrote a book called um, My Mother Who Fathered Me. So I wrote her a letter and said, you know, I'd like to come and spend some time in your village and, you know, talk to people, find out what issues are. Oh, she said, wonderful, fine. Uh, come for a week. And um, uh, if you don't mind, could you pay me $5 for food? <laughs> couldn't, couldn't resist. <laughs> so um, the, the village is called Woodpark. Yeah. And it was on the main highway from Kingston to Montego Bay. And you could drive past and not even know that the village was there because, um, as Jane Jacobs said, there was no there there. But what, what happened is that um, they were mostly tobacco farmers um, and there was a land redistribution, redistribution and all the, the people who worked on the farm had their own property. So they built houses on their property. So when you drove by, all you could see was a bar and a laundromat. Um, and you had to get off out of the car and walk for a while before you could see school. So that was really um, the, the context. And um, I decided that I'm going to have to walk around and talk to people to find out what's really going on. I knew, I, I knew it was a tobacco area, but I didn't know um, what they were actually doing. So the word questionnaire was not in my vocabulary at the time. But I knew I had to ask people the same questions. So I made a checklist and walked around knocking on doors. Now, um, I was probably the only white person that walked into this area. The people, you know, the people were basically living in, you know, um, houses that were built, but like shacks. Yeah. Um, there, were, there were two kinds of materials. One was uh, wattle and daub, which was the British, historically British building material stone and the wood frame and concrete block. Mm-hmm. And as I walked around and, you know, everybody knew that there was a, a white man in the village and people were giving me sugar cane and coconut water. And uh, I was always carrying something around with my checklist, trying to write answers to questions. And um, I asked people and the, the Wattle and Dorp houses were interesting because they were raised off the ground. Now, this is a very hot, humid area. 
And I would ask people, you know, why is, why is the house raised above the ground? And they would all say it's healthier. And they were right. It was healthier because in a humid area, you want to get as much ventilation around the building. And the, the floor slats had spaces so that air could come through. Um, then I went to talk to people who lived in concrete block houses that were set on the ground. And as soon as I walked in, you could tell it was terrible. It's hot, humid, no ventilation. Mm-hmm. But the people that built those houses had a little bit more money. So it became very clear that something as simple as building materials had social status. And I've seen that over and over again for, for decades. So um, it turned out that this was a time when America was breaking relations with Cuba. And um, all of the cigars coming to America were from Cuba. And this area was a, a tobacco growing area for cigars. But they were just growing tobacco and selling it, tobacco leaves. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe they could start a cottage industry and roll their own tobacco leaves and kind of provide some kind of export to America. And I suggested, well, we call them Jamaica Royals. And um, there is a cigar now called Jamaica Royals, but it's coincidence entirely. Um, and I was invited to school board meetings and um, talked about education in the United States. And it was, it was kind of interesting. Uh, um, it, it turned out that I had to design everything. Hmm. I had to do drawings. I wanted to write a book about my experience and said, oh, no, no, you have to do drawings. So I decided I was going to be, I was going to do the largest presentation, the, the history of the school I've ever seen. The largest drawings and the largest number of drawings. So then I went to Kingston and I was staying with um, a middle class family and the son was an architect, educated in England and worked for the Ministry of Housing. And I was interested in some of the housing that the government was doing. So he said he'd take me to the project that he developed. And um, it was and I asked him to provide me with floor plans so I could make notes on the floor plans. And I'd go knocking on doors with him, of course. He was the only, uh, I couldn't do it by myself because I was white and this is a black area. As I opened the doors, the odors were unbelievable. Um, no sense of ventilation. Nobody knew how to use the kitchen or the bathroom. Bathrooms were clogged, toilet was clogged, plants in the tub. Um, nothing seemed to work, but the people were proud of the house because it's the first time they had a house. And I'd go from door to door and it was the same. Mm. And, um, you know, a lot of the people in this area, you know, play soccer. It's a very popular game. There's no place to play soccer outside. Nothing. It was absolutely horrendous. Nothing new because this was typical and still is typical around the world. Um, right across from the public housing project, I think they called it social housing, which should have been anti-social housing. Um, th- there was um, um, a drainage ditch. And on, on the other side of the drainage, drainage ditch was a screened off area uh, where it was basically a squatter, a squatter area. And 
this area was called Trenchtown. Now, this is before reggae music existed because this was 1961. And reggae didn't surface until the 70s. But these were Rastafarians. And there was a back to Africa movement. And um, they were they were waiting for the Black Star liner that was going to take them to Ethiopia. And I was able to go there with this black architect because normally it was gated. They wouldn't allow uh, white people or any people. But he was a government employee, so we were able to do it. So this was squatter settlement. It, it was interesting because um, squatters tend to look at materials that we throw away as valuable and useful. Mm. So there were some single people, some married, uh, some with small children. Um, they'd use corrugated metal, uh, banana leaves, whatever, to create one room to sleep. Then there was an open space and a, a fireplace. And between the open space, over the open space, were banana leaves that would kind of cover it for um, protection against the rain. The oven was where they did all their cooking. And then there was uh, a standpipe close by um, to provide water. And it seemed to me that with, with limited resources, people understood the climate. They understood their own needs mm. better than the architect who was born in that country, educated in England, didn't have a clue. It didn't even occur to him that um, the, the climate was an issue, that how the people um, lived was an issue. And it became very clear at that time that there's, uh, with, without resources, people have a kind of individual ingenuity to make things work. Mm. And that was really something that shaped a lot of my future interests. Yeah. It, it, it was called in user participation or human behavior. That's when I started. It was a few years later that I started uh, EDRA, Environmental Design Research Association, that brought together psychologists and architects to think about people as a kind of vital ingredient in, in making design decisions. So you were um, looking at the context of sort of post um post-war and post-colonial modernism as a kind of rolled out universal design language, which was acontextual and, and it didn't work. It didn't work here. And it, it doesn't sound like it worked in Jamaica very well either. It didn't work very many places. No, <laughs> It didn't work in London. I mean, that was a disaster after the second war. So. Um, no, but it sort of works for if, if they're well appointed and they're for, you know, um, the examples of middle class kind of mass housing have done quite well, but but by and large, for poor or more marginalised populations, it hasn't done so well. So, so you develop this kind of. It sounds to me like you almost retrained as an anthropologist in a way. Um, well, that's interesting because um, at one point I forgot to mention um, when I was in Wood Park in a small village. Um, every day walking around, I was exhausted because, you know, houses were next to each other. I had to yeah. walk miles and there was a bar and I'd go to the bar and have a beer. And every day I went, the same guy was sitting there having beer. Finally, he came over to me 
and he asked me what I was doing. And I said, you know, I was interviewing people. Um, he was a contractor and he knew everybody in the community. Mm-hmm. And he told me stories about the people in the community and why they did certain things. Several years later, I read um, Oscar Lewis, Children of Sanchez and Five Families. And yes, the informant was a, a classic anthropological strategy. Yeah. And, you know, I just kind of invented that because um, being in the right place at the right time, serendipity. And, and when I was looking at the housing, public housing, I was taking notes and I was doing a building evaluation. Mm. And that's when I first started writing about um, developing techniques that social scientists were using mm. to evaluate um, housing. So that, what, oh, and of course, I, I did about 40 huge boards. It was a very large um, space, and the boards were, the final project was aligned around the room. Faculty were invited, students were invited. Um, it's in New York, so there were professionals from the city that came. Um, and I did a presentation, uh, about 45 minutes. And then I asked for questions. Dead silence, not a word. One person um, said, uh, what kind of food did you eat? <laughs> did you make? Well, I described jerk chicken and how it's made. And I said, oh my God. This was really the kind of turning point for me to think seriously about education. Yeah. Because I was empowered. I had more information, more knowledge than any other body in the audience. And, and, you know, these are some of the, the critics in the, on the faculty, the really outspoken, very bright, nasty people that you find in many architecture schools. They, were, they didn't say a word. It was only uh, afterwards people wanted to walk around and talk to me about things, but nobody spoke publicly mm. about it. There was an applause, and, uh, yeah. and the project um, was really uh, important because it helped the School of Architecture get a, a, a grant. Uh, tropical housing program was started with an exchange program in, with Turkey. At any rate, um, that thesis was on exhibition at the United Nations building. Oh. But I didn't know that because I had left New York at the time. Uh, and I got a, a telegram. A lot of people don't know these days what telegrams are. It's, it's like a hard copy Twitter. <laughs> um, and from a guy named Charles Moore, he was unknown at the time because he hadn't won any awards yet. But um, he was the head of architecture. And I don't remember if it was the dean of the school or he that saw the exhibition. And they had a, a grant, quite a large three-year grant, uh, to study farm worker housing in California. And when they saw my work, they said, oh my God, this is really exactly what they were looking for. Mm-hmm. They were looking for research architect. I didn't know what that meant. I thought, you know, this was like good design. <laughs> so, so we had a, a two hour chat and um, he said, well, how would you like to come to Cal? I said, great, I'd like it. 
So he said he'd send me a telegram with all the information. And he said also, he just came from Texas and he met a guy named Amos Rappaport and he was going to come also. And he was going to Cambridge to talk to a guy named Chris Alexander. So I went home. I told my wife I got a job offer at Cal. I said, where's that? I don't know. I was too embarrassed to ask. <laughs> so, yeah, the provincial New Yorker, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a that's an extraordinary, extraordinary story. And and so, and, and Amos Rappaport and I, I know Christopher Alexander ended up at Berkeley, but the three of uh, us came. Did oh um, right at the same time. So um, it was this. So they referred to us as the three. Anthropologists of architecture. Oh. Now, what happened? Charles Moore didn't get tenure because the senior faculty were pissed off at him because he went on his own recruiting yeah. and nobody had a chance to interview anybody. Yeah. So um, the, the senior faculty didn't like him and didn't like us. Mm-hmm. So and. Uh, I, I just uh, met Amos. We got along very well together because we enjoyed traveling. Um, we both read Rudofsky's book, um, Architecture Without Architects. Yeah, yeah. Saw that as really a better model than than um, the Bauhaus and, and some of the other things. So we became very close, and I asked him if he'd like to work with me on this farm worker housing project, which turned out to be climatic research, social research, um, and the, the design and construction of um, prototype houses. Um, Who was that funded was, by? I'm sorry? Who was um, that funded it was, um, by? Uh, uh, HUD. It, at okay. that time, it was called Housing and Home Finance Agency. Yeah. But that was converted to Housing and Urban Development. Yeah. It was uh, several hundred thousand dollars, three years. Um, we finished the project. Uh, I stayed for three years, actually. And where were you? And where were you? Where was the, where was the prototyping taking place? In uh, California, in, in California. San Joaquin Valley, in Fresno, okay, in that area. Yeah. yeah. So, we, um, well, it was that was in itself was another hour story, but the, the most interesting part, um, the final report was completed. There was a big fac- college faculty meeting, like seventy faculty, architecture planning, um, history, whatever. The dean of the school at the time was Bill Wheaton, who was a very well-known planner. He held up that book and he said, this is the best piece of architectural research I've ever seen. So while half the faculty pissed at us to begin with, this was the final nail in the coffin <laughs> because there was a, a, a research committee and the faculty, several of the faculty had never done research, several talked about it, Several had done very tiny projects. And here I was, a 30-year-old coming, and it had several hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> it was described as the best research possible. So um, I, I didn't like the faculty at Berkeley. I didn't like the curriculum at Berkeley. Um, and so... Um, I mean, was it still quite wedded to a kind of Beaux-Arts kind of tradition, like a, a kind of... Or, or was it because when when one thinks of Berkeley in the nineteen sixties, one does tend to have an image of kind of freewheeling hippies, uh, <laughs> kind of kind of yes. feeling their way to truth rather than yes, exactly, exactly. Except 
in the College of Environmental Design. Okay. <laughs> well, it was interesting because um, there's over a thousand students in the school. Mm-hmm. Um, um, when the building was built, it was a, I don't know, four or five story building, open studios, it's terrible design. Um, and each year had about six sections of studios and they all did the same project. Uh, I thought this was absurd. Um, I didn't like the projects. I didn't like the faculty. The students were fantastic. Um, they always are. Uh, it turned out that I was the only full-time faculty member that had project working with poor people. Um, although uh, there was a group of young architects, well, I was pretty young then too, but uh, from San Francisco, who were starting like a design center. This was like 1963. Um, and asked if I would help them. I think I was licensed in California. Maybe that was one of the reasons. But they saw that I was working, you know, with farm workers and poor people. And um, I got a letter from uh, Paul Davidoff. Ah. He sent me a draft copy of his article on advocacy planning. Yeah. I shared it with some of the students who were working with me in San Francisco and, and architects. They said, oh, my God. We're advocacy architects. The advocacy concept didn't really hit very hard with planners, but it did with architects. And so that was the birth of community design centers all over the country. Um, So uh, I um, took a job in North Carolina because it was to head up a research program and teach a design studio. So So the... There was a research wing built to the existing building. The existing building was the old university library, beautiful classical building. And um, it was a three-story building. Um, The top floor with design studios, the middle floor was um, the research laboratory. Two-story space, huge space. And I opened the door and there was light fixtures on pulleys a concrete slab, and then there was a, a three-story hole in the ground. And I asked the dean, what on earth was going on? He said, well, we had a program. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the lead into my next book on programming. <laughs> the problem was, the this was an era when Bucky Fuller was very popular, and um, the Candela and Caminos and all the super structuralists uh, were popular. Um, one taught at, at North Carolina uh, before I got there. And their view of research was building structural models and crushing them. I said, well, that's what engineers do. I said, I need a typewriter and a desk. <laughs> I don't need heavy equipment. <laughs> So I actually moved my studio down there. And um, the first project was kind of an accident. Um, a mayor and a city attorney from a small town close by came to the university 
and wanted to know if the university could help the small town, maybe 3,000 people, because they need help in every conceivable area. So the chancellor called a meeting of all the deans and department heads. And the dean at the college Juarez was close to retirement. So he was kind of pushing all the committee work to me and some younger faculty. So I went and um, the chancellor asked the dean's department heads, what can your school or department do to help? Yeah. And every, everybody was hemming and hawing. Well, we may have a student or I'll have to talk to the faculty. When he came to me, he said, we'll do the project. So the, um, the attorney, the city attorney and mayor said this fantastic. I said, the only requirement, I need a place to work in the town, which I did. And this was really the beginning of how I restructured the concept of design education, not only in the college, but I think um, for, for community-based projects. Yeah. Um, there were 12 students one wanted to resign. This is this was the fifth year. It was a five-year program. This was their last year. One student wanted to resign. He had ulcers. He had ulcers because he couldn't deal with the jury system. Yeah. And criticism. Um, and there were a whole series of things like this. And I, I said, decided, well, look, um, there are several different projects and it would be important for the students to go around the town, talk to the people to find out what kind of projects were relevant for them mm-hmm. and what they would like to work on. Um, this turned out to be uh, an absolutely unbelievable experience. Um, the student who had it also remained. He worked with my wife, who was uh, head of early childhood in the county, and they did a children's center in a basement. Mm-hmm. Um, the community loved him so much that after six months, a new position opened in town as the director of community development. And the people in the community wanted him to take the job. And he said, well, I didn't graduate yet. And all the other students said, don't worry, we'll kind of tutor you and help you. And he did it. He did it for three years. And so it, it was interesting that as the students began to look at projects, identifying what their interests were, there were very few had to do with buildings. Yeah, parks, regional planning. And that became the model for how I developed the, the studio. Um, students would determine what they'd want to work on. And there were always teams of students. Nobody mm-hmm. worked by themselves. Um, there were Desk crits were gone. Mm-hmm. Juries were gone. There would be public presentations in the community, public presentations in the college. And we called ourselves community development group because nobody knows what design is, especially when you work in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Nobody likes planning because that means social controls. And everybody likes development. And um, w- when I go to university faculty meetings and, and talk about the community development group, they would all say, now I know what happens in the school of design. Yeah. No, that doesn't happen in school of design. <laughs> that open, it's really basically what I do. So the, the work that I did in my thesis opened up all the things that I pursued. Um, I went through the sociological literature, psychological literature, um, and realized that 
this was the missing ingredient in mm-hmm. design education. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the technical issues were dealt with, and still it hasn't changed. Um, the social issues never dealt with. No, and and still and still in uh, to a, to a great extent, not dealt with in a kind of particularly. Um, intuitive or, or 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 deep way there's a there's a kind of looseness about the way that in architecture certainly as i've experienced it in britain a kind of looseness in the way that we we uh, we we deal with communities we we seem in my experience again to to model ourselves around the vitruvian man or could the, you know the people that we engage with are, are reduced to a cipher rather than a kind of an actual person with characteristics and needs and desires. But I I mean, one of the, so I've, ever since I've known about you, since I suppose about 2004, when I started doing doctoral research myself, or perhaps it was a bit before that, no, not 2004, 2006, I'm not, yeah, anyway, sometime. Um, and I started reading your work around community participation and it really struck a chord with me and it's been incredibly formative in the way that I've understood um, the role of community in the formation of architecture as a way of improving architecture very simply to making, making it a better product in the face of one-size-fits-all modernism and finance-led commercial development and urban centers that are functionally inhumane but look kind of fun but really don't work very well at all right right um so so yeah so your work around participatory design and participatory practices and community engagement um yeah been really important to me and i just wondered whether you could talk a little bit about that i mean what what in your view is the role of what is the strength of participation? What is its value to the architectural process? Sure, sure. Okay. Well, um, there's an interesting history about this. Um, when I first started, um, participation, participatory design was not a popular term. It, it suggested political involvement. Mm-hmm. And um, in the... 70s, the community design centers um, grew up mostly out of universities in the United States. And um, most of the design centers were in urban areas. And consequently, they were involved either in fix-up projects or political action. Mm-hmm. Universities didn't like this. And so, and not, neither did the profession because the argument was that some of these design centers were taking work away from the profession, which was not the case. But nonetheless, um, the concept of participatory design, the language, was uh, threatening. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I used words like community development, because everybody loves development. Um, it's um, Then I, I went to social architecture, mm-hmm. um, and then... Um, in the, the 2000s democratic design, because democracy was a popular concept at that time. Um, when it was translated into Russian several years ago, they didn't use the word democracy, they used another word. But 
the impact in Russia has been phenomenal. And it, if it weren't for the war, um, that really stopped, for me anyway, stopped a lot of action. But um, one thing that's happened, and, and those professionals who somehow have sufficient confidence in themselves as professionals. Charles Moore was a good example. Um, uh, he was he was always interested in the work that I was doing, and um, he did a project. I think it was a, a a museum or a student center on a campus in Texas, someplace, and it was well designed, published in the magazine, lots of pictures, and there was a paragraph right at the end, a quote from Charles Moore, who said, "If it weren't for the involvement of the students and the faculty." this would never have been as good as it is. Mm-hmm. So nobody sees Charles Moore in that vein. Um, from what I've heard from many architects, um, architects who are self-confident in themselves, um, who are not threatened by working with uh, community groups, seem to succeed very well. Um, the work that I've done has been interesting because uh, a lot of it has been in schools, school design. And we found that, you know, architects always want to do beautiful buildings. Mm-hmm. But when the community talks about wanting something special, and n- n- nobody ever wants an ugly school building. Um, I, I did develop a concept called a wish poem, where the teachers and the kids and the parents complete the phrase "I wish my school," and and all the teachers do this and all the students do this. And when you begin to look at it, they want something beautiful, something that makes sense, you know. And so we have a kind of advocacy group behind us. We don't have to be the advocates for what we're designing if they're part of the process they become the advocates. Mm-hmm. There was one case in, in particular where um, every state has a different set of requirements for how buildings get reviewed. There's um, in North Carolina, the state review board, architecture review board, um, they have really advisory role, not necessarily a punitive role. But um, um, school designs have to be presented to them and they kind of make comments back to the community. And we got a four-page letter from the advisory board telling us what was wrong with the design that we did. Um, There are several concepts that I've used. Um, The concept of uh, 150 which is the number, the largest number of people that could get to know each other, whether it's in an office, whether it's in a factory or a school. So the school was designed in multiples of 150 wings. And, you know, this was discussed with, with the teachers and the parents and said, oh yeah, of course, that makes sense. So the, we were asked to change the design. Um, uh, the, the argument was that most of the schools they do have double loaded corridors, classrooms on both sides. But the teachers and the parents 
said that they want all the classrooms to face south because of the good light. They had a previous school building that was north and south, and the you know, north didn't get daylight, south got daylight. So they were sensitive to that kind of distinction. Mm-hmm. So um, as we discussed all the issues, we tried to incorporate those designs. There were local artists in the community. And the local artists wanted to have a place where they could exhibit their work, not just to exhibit, but to influence the teachers who were teaching art. Yeah. And so the building was designed with towers, and that's where the exhibitions were. So the advisory, the, the state architecture board said that um, if we don't redesign the building, they're going to call for a meeting in the community. They said, we're not redesigning because we can't. We're obliged to do this because this was really um, based on some of the community's aspirations. So there's a community meeting that was held. We were invited, uh, and uh, about 125 people showed up. And the, uh, the chief architect from the state said, you know, we did a wonderful job, but there are some problems, and we'd like to make some changes. The woman, who was the head of the Parent Teachers Association, stood up and said, we're not interested in listening to your comments. We only came here because we wanted to make sure that the building that's built is the building that we helped to design. All of a sudden, it was a sense of ownership. The building wasn't even built, and and the people, the parents, owned the building, mm. and the meeting was was cancelled. That's brilliant. And we were told to continue. <laughs> but there, there, you seem to imply within this that that the the architect's role as an advocate also assumes that the architect sort of knows what's best, that they're employed by the community, they advocate, the, the community advocates for the project, but the, the architect is empowered to make design decisions. Yes. How do they know? And I think this comes to some of the books that you've written, for example, your book, Visual Research Methods in Design and yeah. um, Community Participation Methods in Design and Planning and, and so on and so forth. Um Maybe you could sort of, I don't know, talk about those two themes, like the actual te- techniques of participation that you found most effective. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah excellent. That's that's probably the most important issue because um, one, of, one of the problems that a lot of architects face is trust. Mm-hmm. Um, I developed a concept a long time ago that um, design professionals uh, responsible to the paying client, but also to the non-paying client. And that's that's probably the, um, the, the key issue to recognize that just because the people who use the building don't pay for it, they're more important than the people who pay for it. So once that distinction is clear and accepted, everything changes. Um, typically, Architects are not trusted mm-hmm. um, by building committees, by partially because of the language they use. Yeah, architects talk about space all the time. Most people see space as out there. Yeah, I mean there are rooms. I mean I've used words like activity area. Okay, they understand that. I don't have to talk about space. I don't have to talk about rooms. But if you talk about human activities, they can understand it. 
So architects have a language that nobody understands. Mm-hmm. Now, it's true that what's worse is because nobody understands, nobody values. So it's by law that you have to hire an architect. It's not by law that you have to go to a doctor or a dentist or see a lawyer. You don't uh, negotiate a fee with a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer, but you negotiate a fee with an architect. I mean, and and the, the thing that's so bizarre is that architects have real value. It value to so many more people than a dentist does. But a dentist makes a hundred times as much as an architect. So people don't understand the worth of an architect. Mm -hmm. And they do that partially because they don't trust architects because of the language they use. Mm -hmm. Um, Nobody ever gets to see an architect's office. Or when I haven't been to a lot of them recently, but typically if a client comes to the office, they don't go into the office. They go into the um, entryway and to a conference room. They only got to see all the people doing the work. Yeah. So and so most people really don't know what architects do. Once community understands it, and the way the community understands it is when you open up the process and you mm-hmm. develop methods where they can kind of uh, collaborate. Um, one of the problems that has occurred and still occurs over and over again, people who are interested in participation will start by asking, what do you want? Once you ask that question, it's dead. It's all over. Um, You need to start with um, what what are the assets of what what you have, whether it's a neighborhood, whether it's an existing building, whether it's a new building. You have to start in a positive light. Mm. And the, the rule is, not to involve involve people beyond their level of competence, Mm -hmm. which means that because people get involved, they're not architects. Um, And so it's important for the user group to understand the limits of competence and professionals. What what skills do architects have that they can identify Mm -hmm. that can contribute to what they're doing? And what skills do they have? You know, people are expert as being people. Old people are expert at being old. Um, so you don't ask them to design elderly housing. You can talk to them about, you know, what kind of conditions do they need to make life, you know, more um, easily negotiable. So that's why understanding the nature of the people becomes mm-hmm. very important. When you when you ask those questions, they realize that they're experts. We're all experts, mm-hmm. but our areas of expertise different. And when, when that's understood, you begin to develop a sense of trust. Mm. And once the trust is developed, you don't have to be the advocate for what you're doing. No. It's the people who you work with become the advocate mm. because it's, they own it. It's been part of the, they've been part of the process. Sherry Arnstein's article, you know, the famous mm-hmm. ladder of citizen participation from. Yes. 1969, isn't it? Yes. yes. A lot of good things came out in 69. Um, that talks about participate, sort of, yeah, uh, graded 
ladder of getting better at participant participation until you get to the point of citizen control and that's the yeah. ultimate objective isn't it like to try and get to a place through architecture where citizens are, are particularly citizens from marginalized backgrounds i think we're talking about poor people people of color yeah so yeah. yeah communities that have been who are um, frequently inordinately affected by negative policy negative yes. actions um i wondered whether there was anything like how do how do we get past this so you've talked about how we get past the idea we've got to build trust we've got to listen to people and i th i think that comes back to some of the other stuff that you've written about we've got to actually not just ask people but then listen to what they say and then act on it and then act on it with absolute conviction which is very difficult because it's not how we're trained still yes Oh, oh, absolutely. Oh, um, look, I'm an expert at listening. I've been married for 65 years. <laughs> but my wife said it's selective listening. Oh, dear. I know. <laughs> so that's really crucial. Yeah. Um, and, and I think um, a lot of the techniques that I've developed are based on um, small groups, never more than four or five people talking to oh. each other. Um, so it could be 150 people. They're broken up into small groups. And, 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 and the reason for that is that in big groups, um, dominant voices dominate. And absolutely. Most sure. people just go sure. quiet. Yeah, that's why public hearings have public hearings is the government's solution to participation. Mm -hmm. But it's a fake. Doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's you not know, it's not designed to work, though, is it? That's, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, the people that attend, uh, somebody has something to lose or something to gain. Mm -hmm. um, the material that's presented uh, is beyond the, the level of awareness of many people. The maps mm -hmm. and the drawings, nobody understands. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, you have five minutes to say something. Nobody, it's, you know, nobody listens. No, it's um, it's not it's not a strategy at all. But with the small groups, um, first. And, it, and, and I've done this with small towns and with schools. People said, well, you know, we know each other for years. We know how each other think. <laughs> then, <laughs> and then the, in a small group, I did this the, uh, one in, um, in Tel Aviv and one in Nova Scotia. Um, it was mostly older people. And I, don't, I think it was had to do with some kind of downtown mm -hmm renovation planning um they both said we've lived here for 30 40 years we know each other's families uh children um it, it's just easy we, we all agree always in 10 minutes they were fighting and arguing <laughs> because it has to do with value systems yeah and people don't talk about their own values normally no. but the games that i set up ask people to make decisions based on what they believe. Now, everybody doesn't believe the same thing. Mm. And so I usually, it's, it's, it started with a box and cards, but then it, it got to do with an envelope with pieces. <laughs> they get lost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, the, the, the games do two things. And that kind of leads me to the whole idea of participatory democracy, 
Mm-hmm. Um, the parlor games, um, no matter how you, how good you are at the game, there's no transfer of what you've learned in that game to real life. Mm-hmm. Most games, they're winning and losing. Now, when we talk about the environment, you want everybody to win. Mm-hmm. You don't want losers. Because what happens if you vote, the losers sometimes sabotage what's going on. And we've seen that in the United States and you know, every place else. So voting is out. Decisions have to be made by consensus. And so um, a lot of the games that I develop are based on consensus. Uh, there are stages that you go through and people learn from each other. Mm. Um, and it, it's so much easier to develop that sense of trust because people value each other and they, they value the architect or me for allowing them to talk about who they are and what they need. Mm. So it changes the whole dynamic of the project. Do you think there's something in, in the idea, you call them games, and you've written um, a book called Design Games. Yes. Do you think that, and, and, and games implies play, and play yes. is joyful yes. and fun and yes. something that children do. And yes. I was wondering whether you think that that's an important aspect of this, is that Absolutely. the activities that you set up are are, are, are enjoyable, are playful. Yes, are exactly. Um, uh, many times, you know, if we get a project, we have to make a presentation mm-hmm. to, the, um, to the board or whoever is going to hire architects. And um, I really do the front-end work. Um, I do some preliminary sketching, but then I have a colleague who does the production stuff. Mm-hmm. I do the presentations. And several times, um, and, I, and the presentations describe the process. Mm-hmm. And several times, um, people said, we hired you because in the presentations, you showed how people were laughing. Mm-hmm. And that's important. Mm-hmm. That, you know, people aren't threatened. They're comfortable. And I call it design games because games are fun. Mm. And they are fun. Uh, and um, I designed, the Design Games book was written in 1975. It's translated into Korean, Japanese, and Spanish. The Japanese version was a bestseller in Japan. It's in its third printing now. Um, there are people all over. We've had two conferences, two design games conferences in Japan, just for Japanese people. Mm-hmm. Um, over 400 people attended each one. Mm. And they either had to present a game that they did in their community or do a game at the conference session. Mm-hmm. So there are a whole bunch of people now that call themselves community designers because it means that you play games in the community. Mm-hmm. They have no professional background whatsoever. They just like to organize communities to do things. Mm. So um, a lot of the people that I work with have all retired, but now there's a second generation of young people coming up playing games in Japan, Mm. which is phenomenal. And the thing that's most interesting, in Asian culture, age is very important. 
um, I, I was teaching in Korea uh, for a while, and um, if there's a faculty meeting, it's only the older people that would speak. Mm. The younger people would never say a word. And I'd come out and talk to some of the younger people. I said, how could you listen to the rubbish that's going on? He said, in a few years, we're going to be in that position. <laughs> so the other thing that's interesting, uh, yeah, I, was, I lost my train of thought. Um, Just this idea around play and playfulness and keeping um, these things fun. I was just, I, I'm quite interested because what you were talking about earlier, this issue around the language of architects being, and, and the practice of architects being sort of obscured from Joe Public. Um, and I would say that's part of what we sell. We sell the kind of mythos of an architect as this kind of yes yes you yes. know and we, and we and and our whole culture i mean you've mentioned some of these great figures yourself that you've come into contact with but through our through the culture of architectural education and architectural practice we elevate these figures to the point where they're like demigods like frank lloyd wright like um uh, uh philip johnson and so on um and it, and and i i i do i mean i've always found it's slightly alarming but I, i'm sure it's part of our business model but it means that it's very difficult to reliably have the consent of poor communities in the things that are being done to them and i do think consent is the key word for me where they um you know as you say a building development plan is or you know urban development plan is presented to a community at a community meeting or an architect comes in to do community participation and essentially lumps on them the task of design, which they're not trained to do. Yeah. Well, there are a couple and, of them. And so they clam up, you know, they can't talk to that. They can't do anything. And so in the end. Yeah. Well, I have a couple of friends in England. Yeah. Um, Nick Waits. Okay. Do you know Nick Waits? I'm not sure I do know Nick Waits. Where is he at? He's a he's independent. Uh, he's a consultant who's written several books on community participation. They're very ah. good. Nabil Hamdi. Uh, Nabil Hamdi, yes. Yeah, he's retired now. Yeah. Um, he's with, um, I think, with Oxford, Oxford Brooks. Uh-huh. Um, I think there are a few others who've done yeah. really good work. Yeah. Um, there may be others that I, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Because the part of the difficulty is that um, architectural journals, uh, they're no longer journals. Maybe the AIA, the, um, the British Journal is still a journal, but most of the others are picture books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and, and that's, that's part of the difficulty. That's what most people uh, see. Uh, and of course, what's going on around the world now with um, high fashion, high style, store architects yeah that influences students because they want to do that yeah um and i uh, i've been doing some work recently in mexico mm -hmm. and it's it's very different there because um most of the people who are studying architecture in mexico are going to remain in mexico mm -hmm. and um looking at uh, high style architecture is it's not a, a career goal in Mexico, if they went to China, maybe. <laughs> but, 
so I find a, a, a lot of interest in community work. Yeah. Um, from a volunteer perspective, um, faculty who got their students involved in community projects, and it's really very exciting. That's why uh, the last few years we did a translation of design games in Spanish. Mm. And um, several of us have been doing projects there, and it's it's been really exciting. Yeah. That book you wrote, uh, Visual Research Methods in Design, yeah, there's, a, yeah. there's a quote that I picked out from it, which I thought was good. The, you, you wrote, the residential environment that is part of everyday life has embedded within it cues about the social system, which contains symbolic references that are more significant than shelter. And I wondered if you would like to talk a little bit about what, what you mean by that, that you can, yeah. are you implying that you can look at a town, look at a place as a educated trained in architecture kind of person and understand the social fabric from the um, not, not a train on anybody, you know, um, any citizen from any city can walk around the town and identify where poor, where poor people live, where wealthy people live, yeah. just by looking at the physical setting. So I, I describe this as silent messages. The environment sends out signals, um, and most people know that. Mm. Um, um, poor people can recognize public housing, mm. um, even when it's called social housing. Mm-hmm. So um, we've done a lot of studies on silent messages. For example... Um, the routes that people take if they're concerned mm-hmm. with safety or if they're in a hurry, what are the physical cues that suggest this is a safe route yeah. or this is a, a fast route? So um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's an issue of, of architects reading the environment. I think people can read the environment very well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And do you think... <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. You Let better take it. Hi, I'm on a podcast now. Do you want me to do the, the uh, inspection? Okay. I'll, I'll come over as soon as I'm finished. All right, bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No rest for the wicked. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm really interested. So how do you incorporate this into teaching, I suppose? Because you incorporate this research by design in in your academic research and that's really fascinating and and a subject of a, another podcast i think probably but how do you incorporate this into teaching i'm i like how do you inspire your students and your young learners to take this on as a methodology because you know the culture of architectural the culture of architecture is extremely strong it drags most yeah. folk yeah. To yeah. the center, to normative practice, to yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. servicing well, the one percent. How do you how do you get people? Um, well, um, I've been teaching mostly graduate level, mm-hmm. and um, it's um, the students choose they choose a studio. Mm-hmm. So I think um, the United States is a little bit different because I would describe it as education in architecture, not educating architects, mm-hmm. because it's a license exam that determines who becomes an architect. Mm-hmm. 
So just because you have a five-year degree or four-year degree, whatever, it doesn't mean you're an architect already. Mm -hmm. So it takes the burden off a lot of people to explore options. Mm -hmm. The um, When I first started uh, the graduate program, um, there were three of us, and I suggested that we have to distinguish between the difference between graduate and undergraduate. So the graduate program needs a focus. So we, I suggest we focus it on building design, on urban design, community design. And um, we would provide support courses because studio alone is not sufficient. And everybody agreed. And uh, the other thing was that if a student, the graduate program was basically two years. If a student wanted to do um, urban design, they could work in that area for their entire two years and still get a master of architecture degree. Yeah. Everybody agreed. Um, the urban design people kept changing. The building design people kept changing. I was the only one that was constant. It was community mm -hmm. design. And since we agreed that students could work in the same studio more than once, I had students a minimum of one year, maximum four years working with me. So um, the faculty describe it as a cult. But, you know, um, students are different. And what I was always trying to do is to allow them to identify who they are, mm -hmm. which means that there were always at least four projects going on, different projects going on simultaneously, and students could choose the project. They would go to the community to find out what it was about. They would decide if they wanted to do or not. Um, they had to work together. Nobody ever worked by themselves on a project. So teamwork was crucial. So, and, and everybody in the school knew about this. Mm -hmm. So it filters out a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of hero worshipers. People want to work by themselves, fine. So there are options for them. And then there are always those that enjoy the, the notion of working with others, of leaving the building and going outside mm. and doing something, learning about management techniques. Mm -hmm. Because once you leave the building, you're working with the community, you have to learn how to do it. You have to learn language, workshop techniques. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on. Um, so um, I've had an abundance of students over the years, um, people who are interested in the work. And, mm. that, and that, it doesn't mean that this is what they do professionally. Yeah. It was only the PhD program. Those then, you know, do community design work professionally when they when they get their PhD. Yeah. The graduate students have an option to do a lot of number number of different things. Yeah. And they've all they've all told me we've had two years ago we had a fifty year reunion of the students who work with me in the studio in the small town. They came together at my house. They organized it, 50 years. Um, some with their wives. They remember all the details of that project 50 years ago because it changed their life. Yeah. Uh, one student, um, he was a, a, the faculty said he's a solid C student. And it didn't take me more than 10 minutes to realize that this guy was unbelievable. He was brilliant. He had a sense of organization, of planning, of finance. And um, 
I told him when he graduated, he'd get a planning degree and I'd give him an assistantship. And when he got his planning degree, I hired him for a couple of years and said, okay, time to leave the South, go West. <laughs> and he's become um, one of the major, I guess, developers of um, elderly housing in the country. He's based in Denver, Colorado, multimillionaire, doing, basically doing who he was. Mm. And, and that was really the advantage. Um, we, we didn't really talk about community design. We talked about um, issues in a community and how the students could help. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, there were landscape students that would be in the studio. Um, the students would take seminar course. I would teach a seminar on community architecture also. But they didn't necessarily all see themselves as community designers. Yeah. They saw themselves as being an architect, but being a different kind of an architect, which was probably more important. Yeah. So many of them, you know, practice, uh, have their own practices and um, learn learn how to listen and learn how to use a language that people could understand. Because, you know, they spend a year or more working in a community in small towns. Mm-hmm. Well, and quickly realized that you're not talking to other colleagues or a faculty member. You're talking to people. You're talking to people like your mother and father. Mm-hmm. And the only difference is your mother and father love you, but most of the people that you work with may not necessarily. That's wonderful. That's a lovely point to finish on. Um, Henry, thank you so very much for speaking to me. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to you talk. Oh, it's a delight. That's the mother of all mic drops. My first job was on the Guggenheim with Frank. A difficult act to follow, but one I think the good professor has certainly lived up to. Thank you to Henry for joining me on the podcast, for being such a great storyteller, and for writing such great books. Please see the podcast description for links to all the books and other online material about Henry's work, and a great lecture Henry gave in 2021 on his book, Community Participation Methods. And please like, subscribe, follow and share this episode. Thanks for listening. Peace out.